You know, as I approach my 200th episode, I'm so proud to say we've covered so many important topics. And through the eyes of people living through their realities, we've examined addiction, mental health, racism, sexism, ableism. We've looked at journeys that began in trauma and ended in triumph. We've explored what it takes to lead, own a podium, write a bestseller, a hit record, start and grow a business, change the course of history, or chase a higher calling. One subject we haven't done is to talk about forever young, an attitude of belief, a way of approaching every day. Mark Twain once said, age is an issue of mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. That quote might prove true for people in their 60s and 70s and 80s, but what about the many out there who feel that people getting up there are labeled like the half price section of a grocery store as past due? And if we let these biases go unchecked, we surrender humanity's gift to time, the wisdom of our elders, experiences and ability to forge intergenerational bonds. We lose continuity and unity within our society. We get preoccupied with screens versus looking into the windows of life. Well, my guest today is forever young and fearlessly bold. Her vitality, her creativity and her relentless pursuit of purpose, passion and a greater good inspires me and I know it'll inspire you. She's an entrepreneur extraordinaire, and as this show airs, she's passing on the baton of her company to her grandson, who will join us later in the program. In her 80s, she embraces life with an unwavering zeal, demonstrating that fire ambition knows no age limit. Her name is Myra Sable, and this is her beautiful story. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Myra, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. We have so much to cover. Sable and Rosenfeld is a gourmet food business that you started in 1970. So let's get some of the business stuff out of the way before we really get into this absolute passion you have for life. Uh, and obviously, your love of family and turning over the reins to your grandson, Julian. First of all, can I ask, how old are you? Well, I'm definitely 80. <laughs> and you grew up in Lakeville, New Jersey, and understand that your love of cooking, being an entrepreneur, all began, I can honestly say, many decades ago at age seven. So take this back to those early days in, in the kitchen, and how did that begin this wonderful journey of life? I grew up in Lakewood, New Jersey. That is a small town between New York and Atlantic City. And I remember growing up there, I was told at a very young age, I could be president of the United States. Say I was four or five, something like that. I remember when I was seven, I said to him, you know, I don't want to be president of the United States. I want to have four babies and I want to be a teacher. But that starts with the mindset of you can do anything and you can be anything you want. And so tell me a little bit about your dad. I mean, that's just an expression a lot of parents throw off. But from what we talked about in the past, he really believed it. Was that he saw something special in you or is this that his belief that we were in, you were in a country and you were in a culture that anything was possible? That's America. I know people turn on it today because it's having a bit of issues and always has but i think it's one i i think it's the most incredible place to be if you want opportunity there's no end to it 
My father was a lawyer, and he was uh, going to be the next governor of the state of New Jersey when he died of a massive heart attack. However, his mother, my grandmother, wanted him to be a pianist, and she actually rented Town Hall in Manhattan in New York for him to play piano. But he had other dreams, which was obviously to be a lawyer and get involved in politics. And I used to love going to court with him because I said, that guy is really guilty. And my father would always say, no, he's innocent until he's proven guilty. So take me back age seven, your first entrepreneurial venture that involves food. Well, when I was seven, a young neighbor died of leukemia and I wanted to raise money for leukemia. I didn't know what that really even meant other than setting a table outside of my house. And what I did is I made French chocolates. And the recipe was very simple. It was dark chocolate, condensed milk, butter, and sugar. And I rolled them into little balls, and then I handed them to my brother, who was my assistant. He was 18 months younger than me. And I said, now you roll them in little bits of sprinkles, and don't do them all the same. Do a little bit with chocolate, do some white, do some pink. You know, we did raise money, and the idea was always there to, you know, I loved cooking. Something tells me if your brother had been 18 months older, you'd probably still have been delegating to him. (laughs) Now, age 13, so you you just, we talked about quickly, but your father, who you loved and you went to see court, who could have been the next governor, New Jersey has a massive heart attack. I guess my mother handled it very well because what we did is we moved to California first, which is where my father's family lived, and they all made a lot of money. So I guess the streets were paved with gold. And I didn't really like it there. I can't explain what I didn't like. Can't say I knew the word superficial, particularly at that age, but didn't like it. And her support system, because she was one of 12 children, was in Canada, in Toronto. Um, We moved to Toronto, which was really, I I think, a great move for me. I I loved being here. How did you cope with so many changes at such a young age? I mean, you're age seven, somebody you know, younger than you, dies of leukemia. Your dad has a massive heart attack. You're kind of picked up. You go down to California. You're not quite sure. At age, I think it was 13, you moved to Canada. I mean, that's a lot of change happening. Did did you lose your childhood? Did you have to grow up quickly? Did you run into, escape into books? how, How did you cope as an individual? You know, I think I just was very lucky. When we moved to Canada, everyone wanted to be my friend. Why did they want to be my friend? Because these kids had all been together since pre-nursery school. And now it was, I think I moved in grade eight, seven or eight or something like that. And they they saw this American girl come in and they all describe it to me to this day. You walked in with this kind of cocky attitude. You had a shoulder bag on your shoulder and you had a suede pants and a some kind of a Davy Crockett jacket. And we all wanted to be your friend. So I must say that when I moved... It was kind of easy. Myra, I'm going to move the story along because we have so much to cover, but you get married young and have a couple children over a very short period. I had three children and I stayed home for a little bit with them, sort of a year each, which was enough for me. And But what I started to do even from home, because I got bored, I just not fun morning after two-year-old and three-year-olds is kind of dull. I decided to start the music program for North York because I did have a music education as well. I then started teaching piano lessons to people. And then I was writing art and music criticism for the now defunct 
Toronto Telegram. And it was then that my neighbor, John Bassett, who I believe he was the publisher or the editor of the paper, he asked me to do an article on food. And I thought, food is so beneath me. My mother will be mad. I'm not going to do food. During that process, I met Carol Rosenfeld. And Carol was a small town girl from Altoona, Pennsylvania. And I'm a small town girl from Toronto. The reason I got to her was I was told she was one of the best cooks in Toronto. So I thought that's going to be my interview. The two of us fell in love. We just thought we both understood each other. She had four little children. I had three little children. And she said after the interview, you know, Myra, let's go into business together. And I said, oh, no, I, no, I'm going to stick with the music. I, no, I don't want to. She said, okay. She said, call me in six months if you feel differently. And what happened was I woke up the next morning and I phoned her and I said, Carol, what do you want to do? Let's do it. I just did it just, you know, spontaneously. And what we did is we started to talk about recipes, what we knew how to make, what she knew how to make. And we decided to start with quiche and crepe at the St. Lawrence Market, only on Saturdays. I said, Carol, how can we make money one day a week? So I remember saying, I said, you know, Carol... Europe is where we want to be because Europe is where all the food stores are. I mean, I've read about them and saw them in magazines and things. So we decided that we would go to Europe. And we did. We started in Paris. Our husbands were quite decent in that respect because they were left at home and they encouraged us. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. We went off to Paris and we went to Fauchon, which is one of the most beautiful uh, specialty gourmet stores, I think, in the world. We went to Le Notre, which was a phenomenal chocolate maker. And we went to Brussels, where we picked up Cornet de la Toisson d'Or, a great chocolate company. It was an incredible collection of specialty foods, which we brought back in a suitcase. I couldn't be happier. I'm joined today by the marvelous Myra Sable, entrepreneur extraordinaire, and her grandson, Julian Sable Alvarado. And the whole idea was you're going to import these and bring them to Canada and elevate the taste palate of, uh, of Canadians. Well, I don't know if we knew exactly what we were going to do with it, but they we brought back beautiful clay pots of mustards, beautiful red wine vinegars, uh, jams and candies. We brought back a most exquisite collection. It was almost like a jewelry box. It was so beautiful, these products. We were going to try to open a little boutique, and we thought we would do that in Eddie Creed's store, which was Creed's, which is similar today to Bergdorf Goodman in New York. He said, you know, you girls, over there is a window. I'll put three shelves in. That's your store. And we'll call it the Good Taste Department at Creed's. Then he looked at us as a guy and said, you know, I don't know if you three, if you girls are going to work hard. I don't know. You know, you've got to be here on time and blah, blah, blah. Well, that was a challenge. Let me tell you, we never missed a nine o'clock opening and we were there at closing. And then we were lucky that Holt Renfrew, um, Leonard Shavick was the owner in those days. Uh, and he said, we really would like to open a good taste at Holt's. No, we don't think so, because we don't want to step on uh, Creed's toes, because he's given us this opportunity. But we'll open in Montreal, but not Toronto. 
We drove our uh, station wagon full of our products to Montreal. And as we pulled into their back gate, he was standing there. And he started laughing. He said, you girls, he said, I can't believe. He said, you know, I'm going to tell you, this is how Howard and Johnson got started. You're doing the right thing. People are asking you to come in their stores, but so much of the energy is still the two of you. The fact that you're working together, you're best friends. But as you start expanding, you can't clone yourself. You have to hire people. You have to. How did you sort of course correct your business to know that you could bring the best of you and the best of the products into more and more locations. First of all, we closed retail at some point because just couldn't carry on with both of it. Um, the reason being that is that uh, Carol Rosenfeld's husband died unexpectedly, obviously, and I was left with the business. Closing retail wasn't a hard decision. Although I remember saying to her, we were had just come back. But did you have uh, a backup plan or just I mean closing retail says I'm shutting my business down? I always had a backup plan. I decided we would go to the fancy food show, which was in New York. Um, and this is a show that is, I went to it for 30 years. There's 24,000 attendees from 80 countries. And we had or I had, a tiny little booth. I remember it at the back of this enormous convention center. And I thought, um, this is a perfect way to recreate the company, build up everything. And at that point, I produced some products. I produced a sweet honey mustard, and I produced antipasto and different products. Went to the New York Food Show and had instant success because Neiman Marcus was the first customer that came over to us. And she said, the buyer, who was very, very sweet, she said, I want this line for 147 stores. This stuff just rolls off your lips, you know, Creed's and Holt Renfrew and Neiman Marcus. I mean, was there something magnetic about your personality? Because no disrespect, but there's a lot of mustards in a show that's got 92,000 people and vendors from all over the world. How did, how did your mustard become something they wanted? Well, I think I'm going to have to thank um, the late Garfield Weston for that because he invited, this goes back before, uh, while Carol was still in the business, but he invited Carol and I to London, to Fortnum and Mason, which he owned, to teach us a little bit about the business. And the way we met him was he lived above our store in Creed's. He was in the penthouse. And for him to get to his penthouse, he always walked through the Creed's department store. And he'd come over, here's two young pretty girls, and we had little samples of Godiva and all kinds of yummy things. And he always talked to us. He was very nice. And he said, you know, he said, you don't know who I am. I own grocery stores. Anyway, we said to him, Mr. Weston, don't invite us because we're the two kind of people who will show up. This is the the original Weston. I mean, this is the one that started it all. So, I mean, you know, we're, you're talking about retail pedigree in Canada and you're handing him chocolate samples and then he's inviting you. So you go over and what happens when you go over to England? We had a lovely visit with him. And then he said, I'd like to take you girls through the store. And he took us through Fortnum's. And he said, you know, I love that mustard, that sweet honey mustard. It's good. So he said, I have American, I have English, I have all German, I have all kinds of mustard. I don't have a Russian mustard. Could you call your mustard Russian mustard? I said, of course, it's Russian mustard, right? I'm No question there. A salesperson so, comes out, of course. It became Russian mustard. The recipe came from Carol, and her uncle was Russian. 
So we called it Russian mustard. Talk to me a little bit about where the business is today. How many years has it been going? I think it's 53. And why haven't you sold along the way? I mean, most entrepreneurs today are thinking their exit strategy and some big company is going to come out and buy them out. And this is too much. And I made all the money. Like, why are you still doing this? I thought about it because all my friends, many of my friends are lawyers and they say, you know, Myra, you need an exit plan. You know, you're getting a little older, you need an exit plan. And I thought about it and I thought, what would I do? I, since I am 19, I have never, and I married at 19, I've never been home. What am I going to do staying home? I'm not going to start baking muffins, you know, cooking stews and freezing food. So I thought there is nothing I want to do except keep working. I'm also been involved in a lot of other things. And I started something called Lunches for Leaders because I got very involved in feminism. A friend of mine who lived across the street from me said, Myra, Brian Mulroney is running for prime minister. She said, what do you want to do about that? We want to make sure that he takes care of women's issues. Let's call it Lunches for Leaders, and I'll phone the Brian Mulroney group, and I'll say, we want to do a luncheon for Brian Mulroney. Well, they weren't unhappy, and I put together 1,200 women, and I served a positive power salad. And I remember Brian saying to me, you know, he said, I got a lot of lunches. He said, this is one I could eat. So it was kind of nice. But after that, what happened is I heard from um, the NDP party at Broadbent's group, and they said, well, you've done Brian Mulroney, so we want equal time with this, your group. So I thought, yeah, that sounds fair. And then after that, I heard from obviously the Liberal Party, and the things that interested us were reproductive rights, equal pay, equality in the workplace, and daycare. I let them do their speech, and then throughout the room, we had strategic people who were going to ask questions on those topics. These topics are still being discussed today. Do you feel that creating this connection with leaders made a difference? I think it definitely did make a difference. I invited Gloria Steinem up to Toronto, um, and she stayed with me. I learned a lot from her, from also Flo Kennedy, who was a New York lawyer. I traveled across the country with, um, with Henry Morgenthaler. So I think that everything has helped women today. You know, sure, there's little steps backwards. I can't, I can't, I can't real, you know, rule the world, but I certainly think that what we did made a difference. Let's talk about Dr. Morgenthaler, because that took a lot of courage in your part, because you knew there was for and against. And it wasn't just about, you know, even the controversies we're talking about now with the green belt and housing. This was about life. You weren't afraid of it. And this is a person that was getting his clinics bombed. He was getting death threats. Where did you find the courage and conviction to say that this mattered enough that I'm willing to step in and be this voice? I only thought of the purpose and you know, he was such a charming, wonderful man. You know, I was with him. He was safe. He felt safe. I didn't stop and think, oh, my God, I'm going to get in trouble. There's going to be a problem. I really didn't even have that point of view. Maybe I was a little short-sighted and young and naive, but I didn't really worry about it. So how do you manage to do it all? Your family matters to you. Feminism matters. Influencing politics matters. What's your secret in terms of having this appetite for life and 
saying no to all the lawyers that said, you just need an exit strategy. You need to slow down. You're getting, you're getting a little older and refusing to even consider that as something that factors into your future. Well, you know, the question you just asked was asked by um, a friend of mine's wife. He and I and f- four of us were driving from uh, a party in uh, at Langdon Hall. And he and I were talking business, business, business. His wife turned around and said, why are you two still working so much? What's wrong with you? Like you could just, just as what you're saying, do nothing, do whatever you want to do. And I thought to myself, I said, you know, I think I have an answer for that. I said, when we're working, we're ageless. If I'm making a deal and I meet a buyer, all they want to know is, can you deliver? Can you deliver on time? What is the price? It's not important. We're now at a point in your life where you're passing on the baton, at least part of it. When did you come to the realization that, one, it was time to share the lead singer stage, and two, how did you choose who? It was so easy because he chose me. (laughs) He led the way. He said, you know, I have an idea for the company. And we talked for about, oh, I don't know, I'm going to say two solid months at least uh, with his vision and his ideas, they were incredible. And I knew they were incredible. Also, my other grandchildren, by the way, have other careers. Their lawyers are doing various things. So it wasn't as if, oh my God, I picked Julian and not the rest of them. It was a question that he was interested. But none, none, of, your, none of your children wanted this at all. None of my children. They're also in their own, they're in their own worlds. But I must say during, you know, various times, everybody's been involved because a lot of the, you know, the initial stages I was cooking in my kitchen. So every one of their friends and were packing boxes, were turning, putting caps on, you know, jars. So, I mean, there's a group of any age who, <laughs> the minute they see my products on this shelf, say, oh, yeah, I remember I packed boxes for you. It's Tony Chapman. We return. Julian joins the show. And what I thought would be an afterthought becomes one of the thoughts that just roars through the episode. It's a thought about love. Tony Chapman from Chatter That Matters. I asked Canadians about their money matters. We talked debt, inflation, interest rates, and many were worried and some felt they could lose everything. In response, RBC has created My Money Matters. It's a site where you gain financial knowledge. You learn how to manage debt, reduce stress. There's even tools and apps to help you deal with the realities of today. Visit rbc.com slash money matters. Your financial well-being matters to you and to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guests today are Myra and Julian. It's You could say grandmother and grandson, but these two are forces of human nature. If I was blindfolded, I wouldn't know who was younger or who was older. But I can tell you something. Stick around because you're going to get some great lessons, not only in being a phenomenal entrepreneur, but just being a very special person. So, Julian, tell me a little bit about yourself. I know your background was software and you're really heading in that career, but this is a major course correction. So tell me about what brought you to the conclusion that carrying this torch is how you want to blaze your path going forward. I'm the youngest of three. I have two older sisters. I've been surrounded by uh, girls, women my whole life. Um, And when I was working in Toronto, just down the road, actually, um, in software, um, in the operations and sales side of things, you know, it was a lot of young guys throwing plates at walls, seeing what's stuck, 
Um, how could you go to market as fast as you can? And what really romanticized me about Sable and Rosenfeld was, you know, I grew up around food. My dad's parents are Argentinian Italian. We go every Sunday. We spend eight hours around the barbecue, around the, the, the table. And for me, I just realized that, you know, family, food, and carrying on a legacy were, were worth the risk. Um, and I was more scared not to try than to, to fail trying. She has such a big vision. And when I'm around her, I'm getting a bit emotional here. Um, we were in Jamaica and we were talking about, you know, are you selling the company? What are you doing with the company? And I was like, look, this company has so much more to offer. And just her continuous learning and seeing how entrepreneurship can really be being a leader made me want it, like a taste of that. I was working in software the last three years. I had bosses. I was at ideas. I couldn't implement them. And I thought, you know what? Like, I love food. I love family. I love communication. And this is like a really great platform to me for me to to express who our family is. And in a world of hyper macroeconomics where where's this food even coming from? We can share our story with food that tastes like your grandma made it. You know the ingredients. <laughs> the label is eligible. Growing up, somebody that's as busy as Myra, how does Julian even know who she is, get any airtime, understand, you know, rather than looking going, I don't want that life. She looks so busy versus there's something special about it. I mean, what what is the first time you kind of, she went on your radar besides someone that's bringing you a toy or a sweet or something? She didn't seem busy. We, we would go for lunch. We would hang out. It did not seem like she was busy. So she was present in the moment. I had lunch every Saturday with, with my, uh, with my grandfather but Maybe. why would you bother with somebody spending so much time with old people? Like, and I, I say that because a lot of people feel it's a chore to go and go see grandpa or grandma. But it sounds like this is these were two of the highlights of your week. One of our favorite thing actually was going to um, to magic shows. Um, is it David Ben? And we we would go, we would sit, we would get Hagen Dawes at intermission, and maybe I didn't feel ten, and she didn't feel sixty. Uh, we went to New York together. We had pizza. She would leave me at the bar alone. <laughs> and maybe I was a 10-year-old who spoke too much and she was a 60-year-old who spoke too much. And we would just chat, chat, chat and chat and bounce ideas. And we really just hung out. And that's where I realized like we have this ability to like hang out, talk about nothing. But then we can also, I would bounce ideas from when I was in software and say, hey, what do you think about this? And then she would bounce ideas back and say, hey, that just made me think of something for SNR. Is that a lesson in life for people to realize that both can bring something to the table? Age and experience is great currency, but so does a fresh pair of eyes, somebody that might not have context. And is that what's missing society? Because I don't see this happening a lot. I might, I mean, I know in families that are very close and stuff, but I mean, when you're talking about it, it's almost like two of you having a, a business meeting in New York that happens to include a magic show in haagen but you're, you know, you're having conversations that really seem timeless versus time stamped. I really was inspired how she forged really good relationships. When I went to the first show with her in New York, we met with our co-packer. The communication was so open and honest. Ideas were flowing. Just seeing someone who forged really good relationships 
um, was really open to change. She's always adapting to the times. And I thought, you know, being around someone like this and learning from someone like this, you know, was really special. You know, like I have a friend who always said spiky teams are the best, diverse men, women, black, or doesn't matter. The more diverse the team, the more successful it will be. I think that diversity in thought, um, we grew up in the same city, but Toronto is much different now. How than- does she prepare you to take it over to the point where you're no longer influencing, you've got authority? I'm going to bring that to you as well, because ultimately there'll be one day where you're running this on your own, because you guys seem connected. You're almost like Siamese twins in terms of the way, I mean, you can't see this in the podcast, the way you look at each other and nod and smile. There's this incredible energy between the two of you. But you know that one day this is just, you're going to be channeling that energy because she might not be in the room with you. We're still working on it. And I think, you know, the most important thing that we've said from the beginning when we first spoke in Jamaica, like, should we do this is just to be open and honest and always communicate your thoughts. Whether you think, you know, like I write her emails that are pretty intense. But I would rather get that off my plate and get her answering it honestly back to me. I feel like I'm getting a business education from Julian right now. I'm selling differently. We're doing online sales. We have Amazon. We have Shopify. Julian is just bringing in another pl- platform. I love it. Um, I don't think anything takes the place of sitting down with the buyer who says, I want it. I mean, there's nothing like that as far as I'm concerned, but as far as um, letting go, I'll just know when it's time. I mean, he's definitely going to have the business and um, I, I don't... I, what if he makes a mistake? Oh, he, you, he's already made mistakes. And how do you feel about that? It's great. I made... Are you kidding? He's 28. When I was 28, you know, come on. I made lots of mistakes. Mistakes are part of it, you know, and I, I think that I, the important thing is to teach Julian that those are not setbacks. Those are opportunities for communication, for change, that they're a positive thing, not a negative thing. And what about you as the mother? Because you, you know, everybody talks about work-life balance. It doesn't exist as an entrepreneur. You're all in. You're moving at the speed of life. And it sounds like you're superwoman and you managed to find a way to play the piano and and raise kids and stuff. But is this your second kick at the can in the sense of also parenting with Julian? I've always been close to my grandchildren. They were they've always been I mean, they are my grandchildren, but they are like my children. So I it's not there's not even a question of it's it this is not even a question in my mind. You know, I, I think we have raised our children, my my children and, you know, my children are, my grandchildren are now raising children. We've always been inclusive. Age has never been an issue. I've had parties where my grandkids come in and say, I want to stay. Your friends are more interesting than mine. So we have never had an age-specific upbringing. They've never had that. And I'm married to a Jamaican. And one thing I love about Jamaica, and it's the same thing, there's uh, one of one of his aunties said to me, I want you to meet my neighbor, my best friend. And she was, say, 60 at the time, and then walked a 20-year-old with a baby. This is my best friend. So I'm. we're used to that. We're used to working with every age group and being comfortable. Let's Sort of as we wind down this this interview, and it's going to take a very different shape. I originally was going to just talk about you and bring you at the end, but I think the magic between the two of you is is just something so very special. <laughs> Before I give you my three takeaways, I want you to provide the listeners 
some lessons in life to find the kind of emotional bond that you two have, to find that magic where you go. It's not about the materialistic. It's not about ticking boxes. It's about being together and figuring stuff out. Like, What are the lessons you can offer people that have children where they might feel they're no longer connected to, or maybe they're just completely disenfranchised from humanity because their world is now on Instagram and and social screens? I'd say one thing that's very important is to be open-minded, to realize that times have changed, that young people think through things differently. Um, just for me, it's just to be open. How about you, Joy? With respect to th- especially this relationship, um, the one of the biggest lessons is just being unapologetically myself, as authentic as I can, uh, almost like a, what you see is what you get. Um, that way, I think we can really navigate through this. Um, you like, like it's it's not easy, you know, and it's it's not like we're saying, hey, it's always roses, but I think. If it was easy, we probably wouldn't want to be doing it. Um, so I think being completely open and honest and authentic through the process allows us to feel like, hey, I can go to bed and feel like I did a good job today. So when I bring you back in the chatter that matters five years from now, Mario, you're sitting in the corner smiling and he's talking, what are you doing in the next five years? Is going to be that you feel is something that you're going to be honoring what this woman who started off reluctantly doing food interviews and has turned into this incredible food business. What are you going to do with it? Honestly, Tony, the way I see all of this is that when we're at our cottage and we're, you know, using a product and it's a great product, sometimes we talk about the story behind the product we're using. So I would love to to continue this legacy and grow it as big as I can and keep it as authentic as it can. So people around the world in this crazy world we live in, where all they talk about is politics and what's wrong with the world, is people can say, I'm having a barbecue. This is SNR. Myra started it. It's family run. It's owned and operated by a family. And it can spark good conversations. People can say, this is a tipsy martini. It means Myra touched this martini. And I think continuing that legacy is is just so special and, and, and an honor. And that's basically the flame. It keeps me going. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I'm joined today by the marvelous Myra Sable, entrepreneur extraordinaire, and her grandson, Julian Sable Alvarado. Myra, one thing you said to me a couple of times in the show is that you first and foremost, you like to sell. So do you do me a favor? Sell me why these products are so special. The reason they're special is that they're made to my specifications. We have tipsy olives, which are stuffed with blue cheese, lemon, jalapeno, uh, various products. They're not just stuffed. They're soaked in gin or vodka. They're carefully chopped. They're carefully hand-placed in the olive. In this case, you're holding a jar of uh, tipsy tapas, which is... I'm just opening it right now. Okay, which is a delicious... Um, sweet pepper that comes to me from Greece. Now, I was at the facility, and what's incredible about that is that the Mm. peppers are grown 
where I watch them being grown. There's all kinds of sheep running around the lamb, the, running around the land, and wow. that it becomes the cheese that you're eating inside the pepper. Mm. So when the product is produced, it's special. And that is also why, you know, people sometimes say your product is so expensive. I'm very proud of that because it's expensive because it's really delicious. We are not cutting any corners. We will not cut a corner. You read our labels, you read other labels. This product and all the products are so carefully put together. So, you know, I want to end with my three things. And and the first one is the word you just said, Myra touched it. Myra, you've touched so many people in your life. And even though you were mad at the kids that didn't practice, I bet you they had some of the best times when you're trying to teach them to play the piano. You just had this incredible spirit. Julian reached out originally to be on the show. I said, well, let's have a... Uh, and I walked away from that first Zoom meeting, which you hated, and you and I just said to my wife, I just met somebody very special. I think Myra's touched a lot of people in life, and she's touched a lot of uh, martinis as well <laughs> yeah. in terms of the products that you make. I think, Julian, your ability to both have incredible respect and gratitude for having her in your life, but at the same time, wanting to be your own life and being absolutely authentic is just testament for a relationship that's built on trust and caring and love as opposed to judgment and metrics. And I think that's an incredible lesson for everybody to learn because it's it's magical. You know, and Julian, you weren't supposed to really have as much airtime as you did. And I'm, I'm glad we found that time. And I love when you shared about being around the family barbecue, understanding what mattered, what made your heart beat, family, food, conversation, and putting all of that together. And I can see why someone that has put her heart and soul in this business is just so proud when you look at her eyes, looking at you, why she knows you're going to take it to the next generation. Thank you. That's really nice to hear. Joining me now is Prashant Patel. He's the Vice President, High Net Worth Planning Services at RBC. Prashant, it's your first time in Chatter That Matters. Welcome. Thank you very much, Tony. Glad to be here. We were just talking about uh, off camera that you were having a busy day. What's a day in a life like for you? We're meeting with uh, a lot of high net worth clients and, and business owners uh, here at RBC. Uh, we are a, a group of over uh, 200 professionals, uh, lawyers, accountants, financial planning professionals here at RBC. And, uh, you know, our job is to really just sit down with clients, listen to them, what their goals and objectives are, and then, you know, assist them when it comes to certain areas like tax planning, financial planning, retirement income planning, wilderness estate, business succession, charitable giving, etc., you know, we don't take the place of the client's tax and, and legal advisors, but work with them to help our clients meet their financial goals and objectives. Myra Sable's a, a classic, uh, you know, she's done very well in her life, but she's in her 80s and still roaring. Do you see that often where somebody in their 80s is still 110% in on their business? Well, you know, I've been doing this for a lot of years and, and I would say it's quite unique. I mean, it's a fantastic story, but it is rare. I mean, if you look at the current landscape of business owners in Canada, there's been lots of research papers and statistics and reports. And and the majority of business owners in Canada, you know, are looking to exit their business in the next five to 10 years. And by far, the primary reason is retirement. There's definitely cases, I would say, not 
exact like Myra, but but maybe on a similar vein in that the business has been, let's say, transferred to the family and the children or other family members are starting to run the business. But, you know, the business is the is the baby of that founder. And, and yes, they go, they do their traveling, they do their golfing, but they still like to walk into the office, uh, you know, see the familiar faces, talk to the employees and still lend their hand. You know, they, they have years of experience and, and, you know, where it's appropriate, they're still providing some guidance and consulting. So at the end of a good day's work, do you think you find yourself more now thinking about the heart of the matter in terms of, you know, I'm helping them turn it over to their next family member. I'm helping them with their legacy. I'm helping them with their philanthropic dreams. Is that is that starting to really resonate versus I really just did my homework and made sure the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, estate and legacy and philanthropy is, is a big area that we discuss with clients. Um, you know, again, it's really important to kind of sit down with the client and kind of understand kind of what are their aspirations, you know, when they're gone, you know, how do they want their estate to be divided, let's say, between their children, grandchildren, charities. And it's really, you know, encouraging them to have that frank discussion with their beneficiaries so that there's no surprises um, after they're gone. Because one of the most important things for our clients is to make sure that there's family harmony between their beneficiaries and, you know, there's not infighting uh, because there was not, there's a lack of communication to the family members as to, you know, this is what I want with my wealth. I want X amount to go to you. I want Y amount to go to charities and, and so forth. So, so yeah, I think, you know, communication, open lines communication is, is very critical. Do you ever get involved in those conversations? So when family members are, you know, you're saying having these frank and open conversations, do they ever involve you, not so much as a mediator, but just someone that people can look to and say, this is how things need to be structured? We um, have limited time uh, with our clients. And so um, a lot of the um, advice and guidance we're giving is related to, you know, obviously determining what their goals and objectives are, but, uh, you know, looking at certain structuring, like, for example, on the philanthropic side, become very popular in recent years is setting up a foundation. That's something that at RBC, we've done a lot of work around in terms of helping clients and really, you know, first of all, determining, you know, what are their goals, what are they passionate about, and what have they done in the past with respect to philanthropy, and, and you know how are they giving back. Setting up a foundation has become very popular as the foundation can be funded, get some tax benefits up front, can grow over time so that tax-free over time so that more dollars can go to their favorite charities. And, and maybe, I don't know if this applies to Myra, but maybe you know, one her grandson or one of her children can be involved in maintaining that foundation after her passing. So it will be important for Myra and, you know, just other clients that are interested in philanthropy to kind of share their values and beliefs on philanthropy, you know, to their beneficiaries so that their charitable legacy continues. Well, Prashant, I really appreciate you joining me in Chat As It Matters. And when you're talking about all the things that are heart of the matter, I can see that smile. So I know that you enjoy that side of your business. And I uh, I appreciate you being on the show. Okay, thanks. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening. And let's chat soon.